to kind of move on into the, uh, the, the Moscow, Idaho, Brian Koberger case, you know, first and foremost, there's uh, been a lot of comments again and, and emails that we've had about this case. And, and it's been a lot about the DNA that was left on the sheath. So I think the DNA was found inside the button snap. I think the button snap on the K-bar knife sheath is made out of brass. There's been a question of, you know, if this was touch or transfer DNA, you know, how long would that DNA um, be able to last on that uh, on that surface before degrading or does brass need other elements such as weather and temperature to cause a degradation? Well, uh, that would have been recovered by, I would imagine, a lab tech. That's not something that you would, you, you find the sheath on the scene and you would bag it, tag it, get it out of that element so it doesn't get thrown over on a table and get cross-contaminated from some other surface. So right. you, you seal it and get it out of there as soon as you get to that process for that. And I would imagine that a lab tech uh, would have found that. But as I sent you an article, that there are certain metals and there's a process. And I'm no chemist. I'm no <laughs> whatever <laughs> uh, degree it takes to speak of this. It's out of my pay grade. Uh, certain metals do have certain reactions with DNA. and um, But we know in this case, it wasn't to the point that it destroyed this profile. So mm. we have a profile. We have a profile that matches someone. Uh, matches everything that was described about them that has the vehicle had the opportunity was out and about doesn't have an alibi that we're aware of and um, odds of that individual's dna being found uh, by an unknown lab tech that had no idea who Kohlberger was to recover that profile and yeah. it just so happens to match this individual that's out and about during the same time period I mean, you know, the mathematics of that. Are right. The The biggest thing is that I've here is that the DNA was planted. And I find that weird. And, and, and I'll explain this. Uh, you know, these the theory is that he's innocent and that the DNA was planted. Well, if we run with the, the, the thought that he was innocent, let's go back to what he was doing after the crimes. He was wearing gloves. He was, you know, police couldn't find his DNA anywhere. In fact, they went to his parents' house, pulled out trash, and they couldn't find DNA. You know, if he was that good at, at keeping his DNA off of things, how how did they get DNA to plant it on the sheath? Well, you know? that's the thing is that there's a timeline and there's evidence sheet of where that sheath was from the time it was recovered when it was sealed, bagged, and tagged. Mm -hmm. Who had access to it from that point on? The only way that you could have planted is either the investigators originally mm -hmm. had the, uh, whoever recovered the sheath would have had to know that, oh, uh, I'm going to go over here to Washington State and find me a guy that drives a vehicle uh, similar and gather his DNA and put it on it before I send it to the crime lab. Because yeah. this sheath has a evidence sheet that, and it's locked up and it's turned over to a crime lab. This yeah. isn't something that a CSI guy working in the field is going to be able to say, oh, here's a DNA profile. I processed it. I did this. This is the full, uh, whatever the profile is, that you have an individual that has control of this sheath. And there's going to be a timeline that says, this is when we recovered this DNA profile. Mm -hmm. What day and time was that? Yeah. And for it to be planted, it would have to be prior to the time that the first DNA and who had access to it from the time it was recovered by whatever officer at the time that that lab technician says, uh, on day three, I recovered, I did a swab because the time that swab was done on that button is the key to uh, absolutely show that the only individuals that had access to it. It's not like that uh, in January that mm -hmm. they DNA profile that was way later and 
uh, that we sent the sheath back two or three times. And, um, you know, uh, and then we found the uh, profile because they were eliminating people early on. You know, mm-hmm. they, they were saying these individuals aren't responsible. And the only way you could say that some of those, what, there's several Jacks involved or something, name mm-hmm. uh, wise. Yeah, Jack, Jack DeGore, Jack Walter. Yeah. Yeah. That those guys weren't involved in this. And how would you be able to make that claim unless you had some type of DNA profile? Right. And I mean, how do you transfer, like, how do you plant, transfer DNA inside of a button snap? I mean, you probably have to use a Q-tip. You, you've got to go well, somewhere where he touched something, well, get it on a Q-tip and then go and rub it in there. Well, that's, well, if, but now if you're going to go with a conspiracy is, is that they just swap Q-tips. They went and got one from him uh, gotcha. and then throw it in because you can't see the DNA. Yeah. You wouldn't know if you were successful transferring it or not. True. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, there's no way that you would know that. Oh, I was successful. I got his DNA in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, but you know, that was one of the things that, and, and then the other thing is that maybe he touched something, he touched the doorknob, he touched, you know, he shook hands with somebody. And I'm like, you know, if, if you guys say that he's innocent and he's this germ freak and that's why he's wearing gloves, you know, everywhere he goes. And that's why they can't find his DNA anywhere. Then how, how did he get his DNA transferred to somebody who would eventually transfer it onto the sheet? You know, it, it doesn't make any sense by that. And it's not being single source because then we have other. True. That's that's exactly what I've been saying. I was like, and then in that situation, there should be a mixture of it. And it's not. The other thing that folks were saying was that, you know, there was blood under uh, on the sheath. Why is there only one DNA there? Single source DNA doesn't mean that that's the only piece of DNA on that sheath. That just means that it's not mixed with anybody else's DNA. Yeah. There could have been the victim's DNA all over that on the back of it. I expect it was. I, I, right? I really do. Now, it, it was leather. Do you think that the leather protected uh, the DNA sample inside of the sheath that was facing downward? from getting contaminated with blood? Yeah, I mean, it could play a, a, a large role in it, absolutely. And also, you know, that anytime you unsnap any type of sheath, uh, once the knife's clear, where does that snap go back to? Even the male and female, they almost reconnect. Right. And it can almost be an umbrella effect. And there's probably a lot of things that could have uh, um, hampered the uh, other blood transfers because it would have been a nightmare. Just think that if there was a, a passive blood flow that had ran over that sheath and filled up that uh, button, we wouldn't be in this position today. Yeah. Oh, you're 100% right on that one. Now you mentioned, you know, bagging and tagging. So I'm assuming that nobody's swabbing the knife sheath there on the scene. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't even have any idea that because we don't know if we got fingerprints on that leather. We don't know what we have because there's a lot of alternate light sources to process and look at these, uh, anything at a crime scene, the least, amount of contact you have with an item, the, the least likely you're going to contaminate it with your own DNA or you've touched another surface and you didn't follow protocols and re-glove or, you know, as you do the gloving on gloves, off gloves processes, as we saw in OJ, because that was what got a lot of that uh, issues brought up with OJ Simpson case of not following protocols of how to collect each individual piece of uh, evidence. Uh, we'd have to look at all that. There's pictures, right, of, of the day that's there, and there's a the Idaho State Police Lab forensic team is out there. Now, this is a uh, Moscow, Idaho, Moscow Police Department case. Does that sheath go to Moscow Police Department and then transfer it over to the state lab, or does that go directly to the state lab from the scene? Well, it could have a lot of different things. As an investigator, if I had that knife sheath, I'd say, hey, uh, we've got this. 
this is something that the more than likely brought the offender. We have sharp edge weapon type of injuries. We have a, you know, we got witnesses that live there and we say, hey, did y'all own a K-bar? If they say, no, I've never seen or, or even knew about it, or we didn't have any type of knife weapons in the house, that would be something that uh, might get a special escort to send this to the crime lab right now. Here's mm -hmm. the sheet, isolate it, get it off, and uh, because this belonged to the offender. And can we get DNA? Yeah, I mean, uh, given, like you mentioned before, the speed in which they were clearing people, it was probably uh, fairly quickly that they gathered that DNA information. You know, there's been a couple of questions about the DNA, and I think there's been a little bit of confusion between the IgG, what the Idaho stab, uh, State Lab did with the STR profile, and what familial DNA um, from the dad's DNA in the trash is. You know, some folks are thinking that maybe perhaps the IgG pointed to Koberger's dad. I don't think that's accurate. I think it pointed towards Koberger. I think the only thing that had anything to do with Koberger's dad was the trash pool, which is separate from the IgG. Am I correct on those things? Sounds reasonable to me. And as usual, that's the way it is. Where was the most easiest, reasonable explanation? Yeah, I th you know, the IgG came second. I actually had a conversation with Gabriela Vargas, uh, the defense's uh, witness on the IgG. And she was telling us how, or she, I got her to talk about the IgG and what it takes to create it. And apparently the STR has to be created first. And then the IgG is created basically out of the STR, which is that lineage and that tree. Um, if that's the case, right, and Brian Koberger was connected through the STR profile after they found the DNA uh, that connected to his dad, do you think that the IgG can have any effect on the case? I mean, I think it's, even if you get it thrown out, it, well, it's not being used anyways, but I don't think that the fruit of the poisonous tree falls in there. I think, you know, with the STR profile. Yeah, no, I, I agree with, with the court, with, they'll sort that out. I mean, you know, I, but I, I, I agree with you. I don't think that uh, it, if they're not going to use it, they're not going to use it. And it's not, it's a non-issue. You know, they're trying to, um, uh, suppress the uh, grand jury and all the other stuff, you know, and uh, the indictment is what they're trying to get thrown out. So um, yeah. I think they're just throwing every, uh, everything against the wall, see what sticks and what can we get suppressed. And it's not working right now. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I agree with you 100 percent. Let's see. All right. Let me uh, we're going to ask a few questions and we're going to get into this video uh, that you did on the Brian Koberger case referencing what you can see at nighttime uh, and very similar to the, the scenario in which uh, Dylan Mortensen found herself in that night uh, of November 13th. It says, could the DNA being in the snap have protected it from the elements? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I asked that one. Yeah, um, yeah one, the effect, yeah. The wording in the affidavit is leading some people to believe that Brian's dad's DNA could also be on the button snap. No, single source DNA, and it came back to uh, the, when they tested the DNA um, from Brian Koberger's home, uh, what they found was Brian Koberger's father's DNA. And it, the DNA came back as, um, you know, a match to whoever his son would be. You know, you'd have to yeah. find the son. What are your thoughts on Zan and Ethan's location? Blood outside of the back of the wall, but reports neither body was located in that area. Um, doesn't mean that you couldn't uh, have some type of injury and and be there for a few minutes and possibly move to another location. You were trying, you know, people do that. But uh, that's a possibility. I have no idea. I don't know where the bodies were. Uh which we will find out when court's here. But, um, you know, there's nothing uh, that says that uh, people have to stay in one location, especially when you have uh, type of injuries um, and knife uh, fights and uh, knife victims. Uh, there's a lot of movement in crime scenes with them. 
Yeah, 100%. When it comes to their locations, we know that Xana, you know, from all the indications, her body was found on the floor. Um, we do know that there's a thud that's being heard on, on the audio. So, you know, did that thud come from her falling off of a bed while the, you know, while the suspect was there? Or, you know, did the suspect already leave and then, you know, still alive, fall off the bed and create the thud? Get up, stumble, and fall. I mean, there's so many ways of thuds. Right, exactly. So I'm not sure about that. Now, I do know that, and it does make me believe that, you know, at least one person maybe perhaps for a little while survived this. You know, there was a report from Ashley Banfield on News Nation that the discovery of the bodies came from Ethan's best friend. I spoke with Christy Gonsalves. She confirmed that that was the case and that she spoke with Ethan's best friend and that the location uh, basically, what he had said was that he went up there, attempted to open the door in the second floor, uh, but was unable to because the door was being blocked by Ethan in the way. And so you can't lock the door and then walk out of it. Um, he may have in his last moments trying to protect, you know, yeah. secure the door. 100%. Best he could. If possible, evidence has DNA on it, but has been outside. How long would it survive in the elements like snow and rain? Not on metal, but on cloth type material. You can look into, uh, uh, there's DNA profiles that are from hundreds, if not thousands of years. So how long does DNA last? In the right conditions, we know for a fact that historically it can last for an extremely long time. Uh, if the lights were out in the bedrooms, how did BK see enough to stab four people? Was there enough ambient light to do it? Well, I know that when I was doing my process that uh, my night vision, after 30 or 40 seconds, even with some of these uh, LEDs I was using got pretty good <laughs> and uh, doesn't take much light to move around. And uh, because when I'm dealing with uh, this individual here, he's over in the corner covered up. And his food doesn't like him because he, he does have a, a extremely sharp knife. I only nicked myself one time. With it. <laughs> uh, be careful with that, man. What is your take on the absence of a blood trail from the scene? I'm not sure. You know, we have a blood trail. That is. Yeah, okay. we have a blood. We have a footprint transferred blood trail. Right. So, and so from that aspect of it, and uh, I did a test on uh, how far, if you stepped in a passive pool of blood, how far could you go? Uh, Mrs. Steve walked a, um, a layout of um, a board, and uh, she was able um, to track out to 140-something feet, I believe, that you still had, uh, under proper processing, be able to identify that shoe pattern. And the footprint that was recovered was in front of the witness's door, which would probably be somewhere... 20 feet or so. We just don't know where the passive blood pool was at what point inside of the room where Zaina and Ethan were located. It could have been anywhere. It could have been on the victim that we have that uh, blood transfer that would allow that shoe pattern to, at some point, it could be oversaturated and not have a clear print. But as you walk and the saturation gets less and less, you're going to have a almost perfect print that comes out is developed but the uh what they used in the um in the probable cause affidavit they stated it was a latent uh, a latent footprint wouldn't forgive me if i'm wrong but doesn't that mean it's not visible and uh, uh and that's that's true that yes it's not visible but it's to the point that still being processed it becomes visible but gotcha. yes uh that even with my test you can see that that until you hit it that uh, mrs uh steve as she walked um the hundred foot plus that uh, some of them, you could just barely see that there was uh, any design. But mm -hmm. when you hit it with luminol, it blew up like, oh, here it is. Gotcha. Here's the full print. I have a question. I don't know if you've done this experiment, but have, have you tried stepping in a pool of blood with cloth booties on 
and then take those booties off and see what kind of trail it leaves. I've, I've done it with the booties on, but I've not taken the booties off and see if there's a, um, a wicking or uh, cross contamination. Um, I'll do that. Um, and I'll send that to you because that's your idea. I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cause like, I, I'm just curious because if it's a latent footprint and you're saying that if somebody's stood in a pool of blood that, you know, you're looking at a couple of hundred feet or steps there. And, you know, if they're looking at a latent footprint, that's about 40 feet away. I think that maybe perhaps there was something that covered, I mean, or lightened mm -hmm. the print, you know, because um, I'll do it with both. I think I've done it with the booty on. I don't think yeah. I've done it with the booty off. Um, but now as far as absence of a blood trail of a injury of the offender, uh, blood, uh, whenever it gets on any type of surface, such as a knife or on your person, on your clothing, the drip pattern is not going to last very long. Uh, if you saturate a knife or you go into your kitchen, get you a butter knife, wet it and run it across your countertop, you'll see that after a few drops, that blood, that, that water pattern quits dripping just due to the surface tension that there's not a sustained blood a source of blood and for a blood trail to last and that's what as csi guys and ladies and techs that when you're there you're looking for that blood droplets that are 20 30 feet away from the scene for the fact that shows that our offender has a sustained injury that is creating a source of blood um, that is continuously dropped as he uh, leaves the scene mm -hmm. and, um, but whereas if it's just something that's contaminated and is this dripping at a certain point, those blood droplets will quit uh, because there's no uh, sustained uh, blood flow. And uh, it's only from the victim. So generally, those blood droplets will be extremely close to where the uh, source that was uh, it obtained. And if there's, the offender doesn't have an uh, injury, you're not going to have those blood droplets leaving a um, uh, crime scene. Got you, got you. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I've been saying. You know, I've been saying that, you know, when people say that Brian Cobra had no DNA in his car, uh, I come back with, I mean, he wasn't actively bleeding. Nobody was actively bleeding in that car for there to be blood everywhere. The only place that there would be blood is if wherever there was blood on him and he contacted somewhere. Now, if he took off his clothing and had a change of clothes before he went in and wiped himself off, then he's limiting the amount, the area that he would have to obviously clean after the fact. He had seven weeks to clean up the car, you know, after thinking about it uh, and given his knowledge and uh, forensics and things like that, I think that it was possible that he cleaned it up to the point where there was nothing there left anymore. Or uh, even if there was, it's not uh, uh, where you can process it to get a DNA profile. Yeah, 100%. Let's look at this. So what is this test that you had done? Uh, explain that to us. And uh, Well, I uh, this test here was even in the full light position. If you look at the right hand as he faces you, it'd be on your left. But if you were holding a knife in your right hand, if you look in that position, it's hard to see that this individual has a uh, knife that he's holding it has almost a seven inch blade on it even in this image i uh, created this to show that in those low light conditions that he may have had this knife in his hand and the witness um, this this test served a couple purposes of uh, what could the witness see of the offender and what could the offender see of the witness standing in that doorway this test was to create low light conditions and whereas there's so many variables of how that offender as he came across through certain lit areas, the intensity of that light, would you be able to see facial features? And would the offender be able to see in the doorway when she was standing there through the shadows of, of what they could see? I wanted to get a perspective of that. While I don't have the um, neon lighting source they had, 
Um, I did create multi-source uh, LED lighting, uh, was able, as you can see here, as he comes across the room in these low light conditions, you can't see anything around his waist area, but you certain areas you can see um, his facial features. And given the fact that the lighting source here is, 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 is hitting his face, um, would that make the other parts that are in the shadows much harder to see, given that there is a light source that's coming up from that area? Working in low light conditions, if you have anything backlit behind him, it actually shadows the face. Right. So if there was light behind him that was very bright, it would almost uh, offset any of this lighting coming from this angle. But there's only a very narrow window. That doesn't say that I'm anywhere close to what the light level was because they could have been reflected light off of different appliances, walls, uh, night lights. They had you know, windows you, too. Yeah, windows that could re come in and reflect off the wall. It gives it uh, a far easier uh, ability to identify the offender. Yeah, because right here, I mean, I think that the human eye can allow in a little bit more light than a camera can, so it'll probably be a little bit lighter than this. But it was this not will, much. Right, right. This will probably be a pretty fair act image of what she may have seen. And like you said, you know, wearing dark clothing, being in the shadows in the dark, I think that a higher light source like that, illuminating the top part of his head, maybe it would cause, you know, uh, it'd be difficult to see. Uh, it, it, it sure sure looks like it's hard to see anything here. I mean, I, I think I would have difficulty even saying that this person has bushy eyebrows in this light. Yeah, you can see that location with me, you can identify me. Yeah. If you knew who I was. That's true. All right. So that's the light source that you created that you put up there. Uh -huh. And uh, I put the victim and I have the door hinge wrong, but the uh, whenever I was creating it, uh, but uh, I put them in the most exposed position that if the door is open, regardless of which way the door is hinged, that they either they're standing inside um, or um, standing fully exposed in the door frame itself. And I wanted to see that through the shadow effect in the low light conditions, would you be able to see that uh, her? Now, if the door is hinged the other way, she may have only had the door cracked four inches mm -hmm. and, and only looking through a four inch crack, which of course, Koberger absolutely wouldn't be able to see her for the fact that when we get to the end of this video, you'll see that even when she's standing in the threshold, this here is where she's standing uh, 32 inches back. Mm -hmm. Even the full lit area, you're starting to have shadow effects that you really can hardly even see her mm -hmm. uh, or, or this mannequin I have placed here. But uh, when you put them in the, uh, uh, as you'll, when we get on into the video, you'll see the other presentation also. Yeah, I mean, even in this well lit area, it's hard to see that person. Yeah, I have a skeleton yeah. on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> so I assume this is the dark. This is uh, when I uh, turn off the lights, I come in there. Um, you can see that you have that dark opening. Uh, this is a, the first path of when she's 32 inches inside. They yeah. Absolutely. Even with my human eye, I could not see her, mm -hmm. which is a little bit lighter than this. And I yes. ran this path two or three times. I need to take my glasses off on this one to see. <laughs> I don't see I don't see anybody. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm standing there uh, looking in. And, and that's the other thing, you know. I mean, if, if, if the rumors are true, and these are also rumors as well, that supposedly Dylan yelled something out, whether it's be quiet or whatever the case mm -hmm. may be. You know, if he's in the other room, tunnel vision, he may have heard somebody yell but not know. Mm -hmm. He hasn't gone down you know, to the first floor yet. So he doesn't know where they are. He may have just, you know, well, said it's time to get out and walk straight out the door. And not when, see I, when I set this mannequin up, I, I stacked the deck against the mannequin. I put white t-shirt on it, blonde hair. I put the most highly reflective styrofoam piece of what I, I, I put everything that if it's going to reflect and you can see them, you're going to be able to see them uh, yeah. in these low light conditions. Um, I tried to stack it, put her fully out there in the threshold. 
this was probably the most surprising part of the video that even in this low light that with my training clearing houses i would have seen her but if you're just been in four fight you may have walked right past her and never seen her oh yeah tunnel vision too it's a it's a real thing you know if he's like i gotta get out of here it's time to go somebody yelled something out and and he's focusing in on the exit he may never i mean she could have been out there and because he's looking in that direction mm -hmm. never seen it and, oh geez um, i didn't even know you got that close to it that's yeah that's what i'm saying i'm standing in the threshold and and at arm's length i'm using my as you'll see here i'm using my console to light up the face yeah and when you take the light source off she disappears yeah. and i'm 20 inches from her and then i went in and uh, created another backlight with uh, uh what uh, if there was lighting in the kitchen area from night lights or ambient light um, to uh, see if it gives a better view and and that's what this uh, when you come in here um, this next one is i tried like i said i tried to stack the deck i put brought in these low light uh, uh, lanterns to mm -hmm. give it even a more of a, a lit area to create shadows to check yeah i mean that's hard to see but like i said there she is yeah. at my fingertips. Yeah. I mean, that's like I said, I mean, a lot of people are looking at that situation and looking and dissecting it and seeing, you know, these but, these things that are, you know, they can't tell that these are, this is possible, that he could have missed her. She couldn't uh, probably have not been 100 percent sure of what he was doing or what he was mm -hmm. wearing. But law enforcement knows the exact light level. And hopefully they documented it far greater because I'm, I'm having to speculate and guess. They would have asked the witness what lights were on. Where was he standing when you saw those features? What's those distances? They'll have it diagrammed out, mapped out, and be able to present that to a court. Uh, and that's the problem I had with them taking the house down. Mm -hmm. No one else will ever be able to stand in those locations in, in those uh, as close as we can. Regardless of what the sounds were, if you let the house up identically uh, as the time frame, you're going to be able to see certain things. Yeah, I think you make a very valid point about what you can see and what you can't see inside that house. Because, I mean, they can replicate the house all they want, but it's not the same. You know, it's not the same. It's not the same house. It's not positioned, you know, the in the same place. You know, does the sun hit the house in a certain way that illuminates or the moon hits the house in a certain way that illuminates the interior? You know, those type of things that we'll never know now. Yeah, yeah um, you look at this, I mean, you know, um, the silhouette is extremely disturbing. And um, oh, yeah. I'm sure that this is, that's going to be pretty close, I would imagine, regardless. I would think so, too. I mean, there's no hair, right? We know that there's no hair because if there was hair, they would have tested that. You know, there wouldn't be need for, for the DNA off the knife sheet. So that tells me that there was no DNA under fingernails or any of those type of things. You know, DNA, uh, hair is easy to come off. I, I think that he would have probably been wearing something like that to prevent hair from falling off. What, what other things can somebody do to prevent, you know, losing hair? Well, I mean, you know, just like the restaurant surf business, you know, you got hair nets. I mean, uh, how prep, how much, how prepared was he, uh, this offender? And regardless of who the offender is, other than that sheath, we don't know. And we would know by now. That doesn't mean that they're not continuing processing. And there may be other DNA. They just haven't found it yet. I always say that. But that's the truth. At the end of the day, I've been there, whereas... It took multiple times of things being tested before that DNA profile was found. And it was on an airbag that's locked inside your <laughs> dashboard of your car. And it can only have two DNA profiles on it of when it or, you know, whoever the installer is. And um, or so it'd be three plus my victim or the offender. 
because we knew this passenger side airbag uh, made contact with the offender because it broke his gun. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and mm -hmm. that's only be held, uh, could occur by him being a passenger when the airbag was deployed. I mean, forensics is, is it'll catch everybody eventually, you know, and, and it's tricky. Oh, yeah. And I can't wait to see what the next advancement in DNA is. I mean, it's, it's coming, guys. You know, oh, yeah. Uh, what do you think about the IgG stuff? Are you, are you with it? The fact that they're, one of the arguments is that some of these folks that are doing it aren't aware that their DNA is going to be possibly used in a law enforcement case. How do you feel about that? Do you think that that's something that every person should have the right to decide, you know, if they want to do their ancestry and, and know that their DNA goes out there, that's uh, up to them. Well, how do you feel about it? I think that uh, if you go out and commit a crime, you have no, that if it's gone through the court service and there'll be precedents set for this, there will be at some point, it will go to the Supreme Court. It will be settled. That what are your privacy rights as far as an offender versus your kinfolk looking to see if they're kin to you or not, <laughs> you know? And yeah. uh, But that will be settled. Uh, right now, it's going to be argued in the courts, but there will be a case that will define exactly how this will happen. I don't think we have one. That, I don't know what the highest ruling is right now. Do you mm -hmm. Or the highest finding? Fan? As far as this goes, um, I don't, well, I know that they've used the IgG in other, in other cases. And I think that some of it's been argued, but it's been denied like the golden state killer. I don't know if they argued, you know, this thing, but there've been a few of them that have asked for the, the tree and stuff. And the FBI has never had to give it away or give it up because at the end of the day, it's like a lie detector test. It's not, it's not admissible in court. It doesn't necessarily prove that Brian Koberger did anything. It just kind of points in that direction. It just, you know, because they didn't test his DNA, you know, the FBI didn't test uh, Brian Koberger's DNA to the DNA on the sheath. So you can't confirm it. It's just a, a highly, you know, accurate guess uh, is what you can say. You can't go off of a guess and get somebody arrested. So you have to build your case, which yeah. is what they did. But when it comes to this, I think that the reason why they're entertaining this whole IgG mess that Ann Taylor wants to go through with is because it hasn't happened in Idaho. You know, it's not. So they're going through this whole thing about whether or not somebody should get it. Somebody shouldn't get it. And I think that after this case, like you mentioned, uh, in Idaho, at least, it probably won't be an issue anymore. You know, I think that this type of stuff is going to be utilized more more often. I mean, I don't see what's wrong with it. I mean, why why do we have to have a cold case to find a killer? And, and if you have this tool to find them much sooner, you know what well, I, mean? I mean? We can get search warrants for, you know. Uh, everything from your bank records. Even if you're a victim of a crime, there's financials done on you uh, if you're a homicide victim because mm -hmm. we won't know, is there someone new in your life? <laughs> Are you spending money? And that, they will have done that. Now, I expect that they will have done all this to see if there was any type of uh, relationships for the fact that where did you travel? What did you spend money on? Is there someone mm -hmm. new in your life? I mean, that's just part of the homicide, uh, one-on-one. I mean, you, you've got to know everything about that victim, doing that victimology of persons that have entered their lives because typically you are the victim of someone you know and you have a relationship not always as we see sometimes but uh, because not all four of these would have had a relationship which one of them and they may not even realize because that's the thing when you're dealing with psychopaths it's not what your relationship is it's what his perceived relationship is mm -hmm. yeah that's all that matters to me i think that, that you're absolutely right uh, when it comes to the because people ask, like, you know, why would he do this? Why would he do that? And I'm like, you're trying to add reason to an unreasonable situation. But when it comes to like Koberger, as far as like 
know why he did this or if there was an infatuation with one singular victim. I don't see the evidence for that. You know, I don't see the evidence for somebody that's angry, somebody who's been, um, you know, who's upset because they were turned down or or things like that. Um, this person went in, drove around three times, waited for the right moment to go in. To me, everything points to a thrill. To me, it points to, you know, a BTK type of person who it's not necessarily the victims. It's the the act and, you know, maybe the victims to a certain extent to create, you know, a higher profile case. Because, you know, when it comes to like some of these theories that are out there, like, oh, it's the frat guys. And I'm like, well, you know, if you're looking at something that's out of rage, right? Because if this guy, you know, on a frat case, he's mad, he's drunk, the 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 drug of choice that they're saying that he's using is his steroids and that he has roid rage. You know, those type of scenarios don't usually typically end up with little DNA, little noise little no breaking of entry. I mean, if the guys want to go through three people to get to one, you know, is he really going to drive around three times before he goes into the house? Yeah. You know, those things tell me that this guy, it, it was more of a, a thrill. You know, the knife aspect of it, I think, is more of the, the stealth aspect versus the personal aspect. When it comes to to the other evidence that's out there for for Brian Koberger, um, the phone aspect, I'm not sure how how much you're aware of it, but they did a warrant for his GPS locations on his phone. Are you familiar with how accurate those locations are comparable to uh, the locations that you get from triangulating a phone? From my understanding, just analyzing what uh, the father said, what mm-hmm. Steve said, that uh, we're going to be made aware of a tracking ability uh, investigators are not aware of. Not all investigators, but we will be made aware of after this case. Because he mentions in that interview, almost as if we know the location where he stopped momentarily. And look, that's some pretty precise information if they have that it doesn't matter guys it doesn't matter about the dna do what you want to with it because if they got you 40 feet from a window and turning around in a drive if they have that much data on you it's a done issue we won't even have a trial i can't see there being a trial if they can't fight and stop that indictment the dna is the least of their problems if there's other tracking stuff is there oh yeah i mean they also have the phones downloaded of the victims and so if he was there or even inside that house at one point when they weren't He's done. It's not like they have a big time frame, a big gap that they have to go through. And it's it's very small. It's a few months. It's June to, no, to November. And that's where you have to show that these victims through their financials that we don't have an ongoing relationship. I mean, it's one thing if he's a boyfriend. That's and, true. And we eat and went out to dinner and we had all kind of great times together. It's one thing. But um, it's not if uh, we just drove in from Pennsylvania, started school in Washington, and uh, we like to drive at night. I, I believe he does like to drive at night. And I think that should be a warning to a lot of people that he probably was um, doing some pretty weird things at night. Um, you know, I stopped people that had socks over their shoes uh, walking down the side of the road that they would black out everything. I know what they were doing. You yeah. know, they're peeping toms. They're, they're, you know, they have that where I'm going to go and see what's going on during uh, after the bars close. Uh, I'm going to stalk victims. And, you know, was he identifying others? Was this going to be the first of many or was it, you know, we don't know. Yeah. I mean, the shoes, the socks outside of the shoes, that's the first one for me. I've never heard of that one. That one's crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> almost ran over him. He was in totally dark, just like this guy. I yeah. mean, he was blacked out from head to foot. I uh, got him stopped for whatever reason. He decided to stop when I turned on blue lights. And I got out with my flashlight and swept him the hands and uh, my light hit his feet and he had socks. And I said, yeah. you and your bare feet? And he said, no, no, my shoes are under my socks. That is weird. 
That is weird. Uh, what are your thoughts on somebody driving their own car? One of the biggest things out there is that, you know, Brian Koberger would have been smart enough not to drive his own car. What, what are your thoughts on somebody stealing a car to get away with a crime or renting one or borrowing one? Well, if you steal something, you have another something else that has to you have to have a staging ground. You have to have a place where you can keep this vehicle. You can't keep a stolen car in your parking spot next to your vehicle right. and, and go back and forth uh, without being discovered at some point because there's look bolos on that vehicle. Or if you bar someone's vehicle, they're going to say, hey, so-and-so barred my car that night. It, it's, it's not easy, and it's far easier just to use your own vehicle. You may put different plates on it, but with modern technologies, you got to be careful about that because – these uh, plate scanners, they'll identify all kinds of things. Yeah, I thought it was a ridiculous thing, and it's something that's always coming up. And, I, and one thing I always tell people, and I, I just wanted to get somebody else's perspective from that has a law enforcement background as well. You know, using somebody else's car is probably the dumbest thing somebody can do. And, you know, continue to do that if you're if you're wanting to get away with a crime, because in that situation, like you said, you got to get away with two crimes now. You got to hide and stash the vehicle borrowing a vehicle if it was brian Koberger, he's new to the area who's he gonna borrow a vehicle from somebody that works that 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 he goes to school with they're all phd or criminology students wanting to be cops i don't think that's an avenue you know renting it out there's a paper trail so i i never thought that there was a uh it was a, a smart thing to do extreme blonde comes in it's like how do you think he encountered the person he targeted in the home and how do you think he stalked them i mean you know we got our social media presence now that he, what groups were they tied into? What bars had he visited um, on his long night drives? Did he um, know that, oh, um, everybody comes to this? Um, I mean, there's so many ways that some of these offenders, where do you find women? Supermarket, you know, there's so many different ways that these offenders uh, find their victims, identify, and once they get on your trail, you may or may not ever be aware of it. Yeah, you're right. Well, I appreciate you, Steve, for coming by, man. This was a great show. This is a great conversation. You answered a lot of questions that I personally had myself. And I appreciate your your uh, what you've done, what you've done, your service in the past and now trying to explain things to people. Let me show this to everybody so they can see where they can find you. If you want to give everybody your information, whether you're on Twitter, Instagram, I know True Crime Web is your YouTube yeah. channel. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, I don't know what Mrs. Steve <laughs> does with everything in the background. Um, I uh, We work cold cases, and I'm so busy all the time uh, on the road traveling on a lot, and we got a lot going on. Yeah, I never realized when I started my uh, uh, channel, which I originally started it, just to become a, a, a spokesperson for law enforcement and to advise people, this is how law enforcement looks and, uh, at certain things, and uh, never realized that uh, – Families would start contacting me to help work co-cases, and um, I'm in a position I've never been in before, and uh, these families appreciate it so much, and uh, I enjoy doing it. Yeah, I agree. Thank you again, Steve. Again, it's True Crime Web. Go check him out. Let him know that you uh, got his channel through us. He has a few more things that are going to be coming up in the Delphi case and in the Coburger case as far as test goes. Go check that out. You don't want to miss it. I appreciate everybody that's tuned in, all our members, mods, subscribers. Uh, if you guys are still here and you're not subscribed, what are you doing? Hit that subscribe button. Hit that like button. Until next time, guys, we'll see you later. Peace.